Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dig O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Bridget O'Gorman and Candid West. In this week's podcast, we'll be talking about the latest extortion scam doing the rounds where scammers make a pretty convincing attempt at fooling the victims into thinking they have a victim, a video of them visiting adult websites. We'll also be looking at why Twitter has suddenly deleted a whole host of accounts from its service, examining the true costs of data breaches, and we'll be taking a look at our latest research into how attackers are putting PowerShell to malicious use in order to make their attacks a little bit more stealthy. But first, Let's go back to a story we talked about three weeks ago, where the UK ticket retailer Ticketmaster announced that customer data, including payment card information belonging to some of its customers, had been breached by an unknown third party. What caused this breach was some malware which was discovered on a customer support product hosted by Inventa Technologies that is used on Ticketmaster websites. As we explained at the time, this is an example of a supply chain attack where attackers compromise a third-party organization in order to move up the supply chain to, to the real target. There have since been a few more developments in this story, with news emerging this week that the Ticketmaster breach was just one part of a much wider credit card skimming operation being mounted by a cybercrime group known as Magecart. The tactic used in the Ticketmaster breach wasn't unique and instead it appears to be integral to the group's modus operandi, namely compromising third-party companies who provide services to e-commerce websites. To date, uh, four third-party companies have been identified who have been targeted by Magecart, but those four companies have around 100 major e-commerce websites as their customers, which just goes to show you how dangerous supply chain attacks can be. By compromising a handful of organisations, you can potentially reach a massive number of victims, possibly hundreds of thousands. So does that mean that there are countless other breaches out there of which Ticketmaster is just the first? Well, it's probably too early to say that just yet. All we know is that the attackers attempted to compromise other companies. There's no indication yet if they were successful in these other attacks. We've talked a lot about supply chain attacks in recent weeks, and I've got a feeling that we may be talking more about them in future podcasts because at the moment, news of new attacks is coming thick and fast. So moving on to a different topic, Semantic published its latest research on the malicious use of PowerShell in cyber attacks this week. PowerShell is a, it's a Microsoft scripting tool that's baked into Windows and it has lots of legitimate applications, but some attackers have been attempting to use it for nefarious purposes too. Our latest research found that PowerShell attacks increased by 661% in the first half of 2018 compared to the second half of 2017, and they doubled from the first quarter of this year to the second quarter. The main researcher on this new report was Candid, who, of course, is here with us today. Uh, Candid, can you tell us a little bit more about your findings? Yeah, sure. I mean, you mentioned PowerShell is still popular, right? And as you mentioned correctly, not just with the cyber criminals. We've seen PowerShell being used more and more by sysadmins as well. And we actually monitor about 480,000 computers each day, which have at least one PowerShell command being executed. And myself, actually, I'm quite a fan now of the new SSH client, which is built into the PowerShell as well. So there are a lot of good usage uh, out there. And if you look at all the malicious instances that we've seen and blocked, then we actually see that only 0.8% of all the PowerShell invocations that we monitored were malicious and had to be blocked. 
So, of course, the big question is how to block those. And it's quite difficult to find only those needles that you need to block. But the portion of malicious scripts is definitely increasing further. I mean, as you mentioned, we saw an increase of 661% from the second half of 2017 to the first half of 2018. And it's still growing up. So we see more and more malicious PowerShell activity out there. On the other hand, there are some which say that the targeted attack groups are already moving away from PowerShell now that cyber criminals have heavily used it. But I don't think that's the case now. Uh, PowerShell is still quite common and many attackers are just adding different tools inside their living off the land tactics during their attack waves. So we see probably more and more of those while we see more and more living off the land attacks being conducted. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned that 0.8% of, of PowerShell usage is malicious, but still with the amount of PowerShell commands being executed, that's an awful lot of um, attacks, but it does make them difficult, more difficult to spot, which is, I think is why we call it living off the land as using uh, legit tools for malicious purposes. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about what living off the land is? Living off the land is basically describing a very old tactic where the attackers are using, or rather misusing, tools which are already installed on the target machine. So this could be any, let's say, legitimate tools such as the net command, the WMI, or even the remote desktop protocol. And with all those services and tools already made there, the attackers can actually do whatever they want, right? They can do reconnaissance, they can add a new backdoor account, they can even encrypt files with those, all with legitimate system tools without even having the need to download any custom-made binary trojans. And of course, that makes it a lot harder to detect and block these attacks. And if we go back to PowerShell, this also means that the malicious activity will of course blend into the normal system activity because we mentioned that PowerShell is getting more and more popular, even with normal sysadmins as well out there. So the attacker has the chance to actually hide in plain sight because the locks of all the malicious PowerShell activity will blend into the normal activity on the day-to-day -day work. So that's getting more and more difficult as well. Of course, we also know that, um, well, not everyone out there is actually checking PowerShell. There are still a lot of companies out there which do not analyze PowerShell log files, even though they would actually have a lot of details and tremendous help with uh, any threat hunting out there. So we definitely encourage anyone to enable PowerShell logging. Okay, so to, to sum it up, PowerShell is already there on the computer and, and essentially what the attacker is doing is, is uh, making a malicious use of it. And because it's so popular and so widely used, that malicious use is very difficult to spot. Exactly. It's using the tools which are already there. And there, of course, you cannot just block or delete PowerShell with your security tool because there are legitimate reasons for it. So it makes it all a little bit more difficult because you need to check what is actually doing. So what's the script's intention, uh, what it's accessing, and therefore you might have to check the behavior or do some machine learning to actually figure out which of those uh, attributes are benign and which of those are for the malicious ones that you should to block. Okay. Um, so we know that PowerShell can be used maliciously. What uses are uh, attackers putting it to? 
Well, in most cases, PowerShell is used as a classical downloader. So they take it for downloading further payload, uh, which could then act as a payload for a backdoor or a crypto ransomware. But it's very powerful and flexible in itself. So we actually have seen ransomware and also financial trojans completely coded and created in PowerShell itself. A quite common example is also to download Mimikatz. It's one of those password dumping tools, and then use the results of that tool to spread further in the network. So classical lateral movement with stolen passwords and pass the hash. So that can give a lot of access to any organization which has just one um, infection inside uh, their internal network. Another power, uh, another popular use is of course fileless attacks. Those are the ones where you don't really have any files on disk. All the threats are just in memory. And an example would be downloading a DLL straight directly into the memory and then using a reflective loader to run it from there. So the DLL never touches the hard drive and therefore your common security tool might not know that there is a file to scan and therefore also miss it. So that's the classical attack that we've seen with Ghost Miner or Blue Wimp Worm, which are some coin miners which are spreading in the normal network and installing coin mine um, or coin miners directly into the memory, so making it harder to remove and, of course, more profits for them. Okay. Now, I know we've been doing an awful lot of work here in Symantec to uh, ensure that our products uh, you know, filter out these malicious instances of uh, PowerShell commands and block them. Um, and what's prompted that uh, work has been the, the, you know, the surge in, in malicious use of PowerShell. Why do you think uh, we've seen that surge, Candid? Why, why are all of a sudden so many attackers turning to PowerShell as a, an attack tool? I think it's a combination of various things. Well, as always, right? Um, PowerShell is, of course, very easy to use, and there's many, many examples out there. There's frameworks um, ready available for download that you can actually use and create malicious payload with it. So it makes it very easy to access for any of the attackers. And as we said, it comes freely shipped with any Windows system, so it is actually already there and therefore making well, an easy attempt to actually being a tool for the attackers. Um, of course, since it is a script, it can also be very easy adapted to new, um, new needs, right? Maybe they want to cha change something. Maybe they want to add some files that they want to exfiltrate. And it also makes it very easy to obfuscate as scripts can be just, well, replacing a few names here and there for variables or adding some garbage in between. And there are some very um, advanced obfuscation tricks out there that you can use. And again, there's some ready available tools that make it for the attackers. Well, surprisingly, actually, when I looked at nearly 100,000 different suspicious command line executions from uh, PowerShell, then only a little less than 5% of those were using some kind of obfuscation. So that could be the switching of uh, letter, uppercase and lowercase, just mixing that one up a little bit, or replacing some strings, rearranging strings, just the usual magic that we see for uh, script obfuscation. Of course, you could now argue that, well, most of them were still successful, so why would they need to use obfuscation? Because they might even make them stick 
a little more out uh, from the, the hiding in plain sight, right? So maybe it's even smarter for them not to use obfuscation and then just blend in with the normal activity. As we all know, just a regular base64 encoded blob command might already be good enough to fool a, well, let's say surface check by eye and then getting the payload executed behind it. So I think with all that, it makes it an ideal tool for the attackers, which of course means, unfortunately, we will see it in the future as well. But there are ways against it. So make sure that you activate logging, that you have a system tool or security tool that can actually cope with PowerShell. And then you're on the good side and actually can relax. And hopefully you can just watch when all the PowerShell worms get blocked and don't really affect you. Yeah. Okay. And um, if any of you want to find out more about this, um, you can read uh, Candid's research on our blog, Semantic, which is at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. Um, now we'll move on to our next item, which concerns Twitter. Uh, earlier this week, the social networking company announced that it had deleted a huge number of accounts, which had the knock-on effect of reducing a lot of people's uh, follower numbers. Uh, Bridget has been looking into this, and uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, as you said, Twitter has just wiped out and removed from the platform a number of accounts, um, loads of accounts, that it had previously locked uh, due to them exhibiting suspicious behaviour. So Twitter says that it locks accounts if um, they detect sudden or suspicious changes in the behaviour of the account, which indicates to Twitter that it has potentially been hacked or taken over by a bot or something like that. So generally what they do is they lock the account, then they contact the account owner, and then the account owner has to validate their account and change their password before they're allowed to regain access and yeah as the reasons for this could be that um the account starts tweeting like a large amount of like unsolicited replies or mentions at other accounts they start tweeting misleading links or else that they get blocked by a lot of other accounts after interacting with them um and so i think are also as well actually they do if there's been a breach um elsewhere a data breach that has led to the account's email or and password information being revealed publicly so they sometimes do it in those situations as well and when an account is locked like that it can't tweet anymore until it actually revalidates its identity okay um so that's locking but what have twitter done this week they've gone a step further haven't they yeah pretty much so they've kind of stepped it up this week and what they've done is they've just completely wiped a lot of these locked accounts from the platform. So they've completely disappeared, as you said, from people's follower lists. So this is kind of why it's med headlines because the number of followers uh, that some people have on Twitter is likely to have dropped. And depending on, I suppose, the number of followers you start with, the more significant the drop. So in its statement around this, Twitter said that the average user would lose fewer than four followers. Um, but say, for example, Katy Perry, who is pop star Katy Perry, who is one of the most followed celebrities on Twitter with, um, I think, in excess of 100 million followers. She lost two and a half million followers after they did this. Wow. Yeah. So Barack Obama, uh, the former U.S. president, again, would have about 100 million followers. He lost just over two million. And then Twitter's own Twitter account lost um, seven, over seven million. So, yeah, it depends on the... The impact would depend on the number of followers you have, certainly. I'd say on my own personal Twitter account, where I have like a few hundred followers, 
I'm nowhere, Katy Perry. I have just lost two followers, and then say on Threat Intel, Threat Intel's Twitter account, we've lost, we have about eight three thousand followers, and we've lost a few hundred. So the impact just seems to vary depending on the size of your original following, I suppose. Okay, so we we didn't get that much of a nasty shock. We've no. only a few hundred. <laughs> so they're all bad. essentially most of them would probably be kind of bot type accounts. Is that? Right? Yeah, yeah. Well. Twitter says it believes that most of the accounts um, in question were originally set up by real people. Okay. But that uh, because they displayed sort of normal behaviour at first because Twitter says if an account just starts out being a bot, basically that they kind of detect it and get rid of it sooner. But, I mean, but they said that they could no longer guarantee that these accounts were still under the control of the people who set it up so they could have been hacked and taken over by bots in the meantime. And also as well, we have seen examples of, you know, what turned out to be bot accounts or fake accounts who behave sort of normally um, when they first joined Twitter in order to gain credibility and followers and interactions. But then they sort of, their their true intentions became real. So it's likely that accounts like that were probably also um, impacted in this kind of call. Right, I better check how many followers I've lost <laughs> so after this. Um, it does, there's an awful lot happening at, at Twitter now, isn't there, regarding fake accounts and, and this kind of thing, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. It does seem like they're trying to kind of, I suppose, clear the house a bit. Um, and in the first line of this statement, actually, that it released, um, detailing that it was going to wipe out these accounts, it says that it took this move as part of our ongoing and global effort to build trust and encourage healthy conversation in Twitter. And I mean, the fact is that as a platform, it has come in for a lot of negative press, you know, recently in the last couple of years, you know, especially following a lot of accusations about fake accounts and bots hijacking conversations and hashtags. And especially, you know, in the wake of the, obviously the US presidential election a couple of years ago, I mean, that's obviously when this became such a huge talking point and then Brexit and other sort of big global things that have happened. And then also recently we've seen um, cryptocurrency scams becoming quite common um, on Twitter as well. So it's been leveraged by scammers in that way too. Um, so scammers were, are setting up, were setting up um, sort of fake accounts um, impersonating celebrities or say high profile people um, who maybe have an interest in cryptocurrency or are known to have an interest in it. Um, so they would basically impersonate their account, you know, set up almost an identical username, use their same profile picture and that sort of thing. And then they would comment um, on a tweet made by the the legitimate person, the real person that they're trying to um, impersonate. And then also in many cases, they would use bots as well to upvote that. So it would appear directly below the, the legitimate tweet. And in that tweet, they would say that um you know they would try they're they're going to give their followers a certain amount of cryptocurrency for free so say for example they say we'll give you 10 ether for free but first you need to transfer me like one ether so this was going on and i don't know how many people fell for it, but it was definitely very common and the actual founder of ethereum uh, Vishalak Buterin was being like really frequently impersonated by these bots to the point where he's now changed his Twitter display name to Vishalak not giving away either Buterin. So um, yeah, so like obviously Twitter really needed to do like they need to do something about the platform. And while people might be you know disappointed if their follower numbers have gone down, it's good to see that they're tackling some of these scams and bots and fake accounts. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of the, the classic spam. I'll give you a lot of money if you send me a small exactly, bit of money yeah. first. You know? you send me some money for yeah. the admin. Exactly. Yeah, just uh, you know, trans uh, tra- transcribed into the the cryptocurrency age. Yeah. Uh, speaking of scams, um, there's another uh, scam uh, doing the rounds this week which involves uh, scammers trying to extort money from the victim by persuading them that they have an embarrassing video of them. Uh, Candid, this isn't the first time we've seen this kind of scam, but this one is probably a little bit more convincing than most, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we all know cyber criminals are quite creative and always come up with new ideas and ways to defraud people, right? Um, This time, it's another example of a well-personalized blackmail attempt through email. So... The victim receives an email claiming that they have visited an adult entertainment website. And of course, the attacker says that they installed a malware on it and it was able to record a video of them while they were watching the online content. So a classical blackmail scare tactic, right? And in that case, the criminals then ask for money. Um, it started off with about $1,900, then went up to $2,500. And with the last emails I saw, they were asking for $2,900 now. So, of course, has to be paid in Bitcoin, uh, the currency of choice at the moment, in order to destroy those recordings. And the threat is that if the victim does not pay, uh, specifically if the payment is not made in 24 hours, then these videos will be sent to friends and families and all the connected people. So that could definitely be embarrassing, right? And of course, we've seen many variations of this scam floating around for a long time, but usually they're quite vague. They're not really mentioning the specific URL of the video sites uh, where they have been <laughs> enticed or trapped and not giving away too much information. But in the new wave that we have seen, which again in July was making the rounds, the email is personalized that it actually addresses the victim by his real name. And it also has a proof to show that they have information about it. And the proof is an old password. So the email actually starts with, uh, hey, Candid, let's get straight to the point. I'm aware that 123456 is your password. Moreover, I do not know you, um, but I do know about your secret and I have evidence of your secret. You do not know me and nobody hired me to examine, examine you. And there the email goes on. So, of course, that's quite convincing, right? Uh, And probably a lot of people are scared because it's their real name and it might even be a password that they still use somewhere. So that definitely raises a few concerns. Of course. Yeah, I mean, it it, uh, probably leverages the fact that a lot of people tend to reuse uh, passwords and uh, they they might maybe uh, worried that uh, that this was genuinely used. Um, So they're kind of saying, I used your password to, you know, log into your computer and hijack your webcam and film you visiting this site. Is that really what they're doing? Well, of course, they got the information from one of those uh, many, many data breaches from the past, right? There have been so many, and we've reported on those as well. And with some of them, it's the email address, the the name of the person, but also the password, or at least a crackable hash of the password, which got released to the public. So hence, there are lists in the underground which have all the information that they need 
to send those uh, very specific email address uh, emails with corresponding name and passwords, making it very convincing and therefore very lucrative for the scammers. But of course, they haven't used the password to log into your machine. Uh, that's just a scare tactic. Um, they just claim that they were installing a malware. They don't even specify if it was through an exploit or through their password. Well, as you said, a lot of people might still have weak passwords or passwords that they haven't changed in the past. And of course, mine's not one, two, three, four, five, six. That's just an example. But it is quite convincing if they see um, your password in an email, and then you probably think, well, if they have the password, then they sure will be able to access my computer. And therefore, well, there is a chance that they recorded something. So a lot of people actually do pay. Okay, yeah, I mean, I can imagine why they might be tricked if you get an email with your a genuine passwords that you've used at some point in the past, you probably, um, you know, you, you, you may be conned by it, all right. Um, so what um, should people do if they get one of these emails? Well, first of all, of course, don't panic, right? I mean, regardless if you have been on a questionable website or not, uh, just don't panic. Best thing is just to ignore it and delete it. Uh, and of course, don't pay. Uh, so it's definitely not worth it. Uh, also, don't try to uh, reply to the email, uh, negotiating with the, the cyber criminals, because that means that they know that you're taking it serious uh, and they probably will come up with a plan to definitely get some money out of you. So just ignore it, delete it. And if you're still using that password somewhere, then it's probably a good idea to change all those accounts as well, just for the safety and just to be good for this future. Yeah, I mean, if, if that password is in their hands, uh, goodness knows who else has it. Um, so just to sum up, um, while they may have a genu your name and a genuine password they've used, that doesn't mean they've done what they're claiming to have done. They haven't hacked into your computer or videoed you or anything like that. Absolutely. So. Don't freak out and just delete the email and get to the next one. Um, as we all know, there's probably enough real emails that you have to work on. Okay. Um, and that kind of brings us sort of neatly onto our next item because we were talking about passwords leaked and data breaches. And we're going to talk a little bit more about data breaches now because a new report was published uh, this week and it finds that the cost of dealing with data breaches may be an awful lot higher uh, than probably most people suspect. Uh, Bridget, uh, you've been reading this report, haven't you? Yeah, so I suppose why um, the last story there kind of underlines the potential costs to consumers who are hit by data breaches. This report looks at the financial costs to the businesses that are affected. So it's the 2018 cost of a data breach study, which is from the Poneman Institute. And this is a global study and it reveals that the average financial impact of a data breach for organizations is um, 3.86 million uh, US dollars, which is a huge sum of money. Um, however, in the case of mega breaches that we hear about, uh, the cost can completely skyrocket to between 40 million and 350 million dollars. And say, for example, the uh, Equifax mega breach um, that many people would be familiar with. Uh, so this saw the data of 148 million customers from the credit monitoring company being compromised. So it was a huge breach. And it's reported to have already cost the company almost 250 million dollars in various costs and it's you know undoubted that that's probably not the end of the cost of that breach for the company yet 
Yeah, I mean, they're, they're phenomenal figures. Uh, even the average 3.86 million could bankrupt most companies, really, when you think about it. Why are the, are the breaches costing uh, organisations so much? Well, perhaps, I mean, not totally surprisingly, according to this study, one of the main ways that these breaches can cost businesses money is in not actually in the kind of reaction to the breach as such, but in the loss of business that they then experience. Because if you're the subject of a high profile data breach, you many companies then can find it more difficult to attract new business. And then they may also damage the existing business relationships they have. And so that might actually, that sort of impact may actually cost the business a lot more in the long term than the actual you know immediate cost of things like cleaning up and investigating the breach and legal fees and that kind of thing and um, this study also says that when it comes to mega breaches which are defined as breaches where more than one million records are breached one third of the final cost of these breaches are estimated to be caused by loss of business okay and um have the figures the way cited here have they gone up or gone down in the last year or so because i know we've had like several years of, of mega breaches yeah for kind of relentless breaches so the average cost of the day of daily breaches uh, so the 3.86 million figure uh, that's an increase of 6.4 percent from the previous year and uh, this average actually doesn't apl- apply to the mega breaches because they're obviously quite rare so the average applies to kind of regular size breaches where there's less than 100,000 records records compromised excuse me um, and this study also found that i mean it still takes quite a long time for breaches to be discovered um, it takes an average of 197 days for a daily breach to be uncovered, which is roughly um, on a par with last year's figure. And so that is definitely something that, you know, could be improved upon. Mm. And speaking of things that could be improved upon, you also spotted another story this week that's uh, somewhat related to this, isn't it? Yes. So this we just spotted this. Um, yeah, this week. So. And as we all know, as Candid has pointed out there with that last story, you know, one of the biggest issues with data breaches is, you know, people's information being disclo- disclosed and people's usernames and passwords being disclosed. And obviously, one of the first things we advise people to do if they've been affected by a data breach is to change their passwords and also to make sure that they don't reuse passwords across multiple online accounts, because as we said, that can then cause uh, problems. However, um, there was a survey done of InfoSec professionals um, recently, and uh, it just came out this week, and it revealed that almost half of them admitted, 45% admitted that they do reuse passwords across multiple accounts. So it appears that uh, InfoSec professionals as well need to practice what they preach a bit more. Yeah, they're the people you'd expect to be changing their yeah, passwords so. <laughs> if they're not doing it. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. You? Okay, um, that's about all we have uh, time for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. That way you won't miss out on your weekly dose of cybersecurity news. You can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen intel. If you'd like to read our latest research, uh, check out our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. Just yesterday, uh, we published a new report on the financial Trojan Emotet, which has significantly wrapped up its activity in recent months. And look out too for a special edition of the podcast on the topic of Emotet and other financial Trojans, which we'll be releasing in a few weeks' time. We'll be back again next week when we'll be once again looking at what's going on in the world of cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.